This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. I appreciate anyone who spends a full day trying to cover the region, willing to talk to me afterwards, rather than winding down and going to bed, you're stuck with me. So, I'm it's honored. It's fun. It's not like there's um, much to do nowadays. We don't really go out. So. That's true. And regardless of the amount of, uh, let's say, the amount of coverage, there's always something on the news. I mean, just minutes before we started recording, the issue with the sanctions, I think it just came out minutes ago. Still, I think somebody like you... I might get stuck on my shift, but then I... I Got away with it. I sent an email. Right, right. You, you deserve a nap, <laughs> not me. But regardless, um, I I appreciate I appreciate a few things. First is your uh, your coverage. We we'll get, we'll get into this. I, I looked into your backstory a bit. I am just uh, two blocks away from Columbia University right now. So I yeah. and I yeah so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I miss New York so much. I haven't been able to go this year. I was supposed to go in May, and then with the COVID, um, the didn't plan. Happen. I was supposed to go back to Beirut. COVID, same situation. So we're both stuck in the same same story. But I also appreciate your uh, your ability to do something, which I think is not easy. Uh, you're able to stay neutral to the story, and at the same time immerse yourself in the story. And I think uh, this is something very difficult to do at the moment. And you hear people talking about that kind of uh, dilemma, where you're trying to be very objective to what's happening. And at the same time, we all have a stake in what's happening. So I, I appreciate that dance. I don't think that's an easy dance. And then, of course, staying in the conflict itself and sort of embracing the story and covering it day in, day out, this is taxing on anyone's mental health. So. I, I appreciate anyone willing to do this for a career and sticking it out in Lebanon, and it, I think it's important. And you're one of the voices that I, I regularly turn to, so all the flattery aside, <laughs> let's get into something that's maybe present at the moment, and then we can dive into your own personal story, and we can cover a lot of terrain. But let's start with what just happened, the sanctions. And I don't mean this as a sort of, I'm not going to ask you this as an economics expert or a financial expert, or for that matter, a U.S. State Department analyst. I mean it just in terms of where we are today, vis-a-vis -vis maybe perhaps some international pressure on Lebanon, and in a way that's unusual. And it's, it's almost, um, I think the story is maybe in flux a bit, and it's evolving, and at the same time, it, there are things that are happening that were probably very difficult to imagine 
before October 17 last year, and they're easier to imagine now. And that just, in, in its basic sort of sense is, it's not just Hezbollah, that there are other players now on the radar. And two names came up, I think it's Ali Hassan Khalil and uh, second name, yeah, Fimianos, right, right. So these, these two names that are perhaps allies, but they're not Hezbollah per se. So just your, uh, maybe your immediate reaction to seeing that news bulletin and whether or not it actually makes a difference in terms of where we are today in the whole shebang, the whole story, the protest movement, the post-blast sort of experience, everything. Does it actually make a difference at, at this point? Um, first of all, this did, did not really come as a surprise. We knew that the U.S. was going to go after uh, non-Hezbollah mm. uh, members uh, of the political establishment and allies of, of Hezbollah. Uh, I think it's the two names are interesting. Um, one could be a, a message to the speaker, uh, Nabih Birri, the second is a first for the Merida party, which is a party from my hometown, Zgharta, uh, who's pro-Hezbollah. But uh, you should know that also Finianos has been depicted as um, someone who's super close to, to, to Hezbollah in the past. So mm. picking his name from the Merida party came no surprise. And I don't think it's the Merida per se, it's really him because he's played a role between Hezbollah and Merida, like the, the, the most important critical link between the two. Mm. Uh, he's very close to them. And if you read the Treasury's um, statement, you you hear what, you know, what I'm saying in the sense that he's um, offered them legal support. He's, um, he's considered as the Hezbollah man in the Merida party. Um, now, I, I don't have any comments on the Treasury's uh, statement accusations. You know, mm -hmm. so these were, um, they were sanctions be because of corruption and because of support to, to Hezbollah. Of course, when you talk about corruption, the, the immediate question that comes to my mind, what about U.S. allies in Lebanon that are corrupted, um, right? I mean, these are just uh, two names from the political establishment against which the Lebanese took to the streets and are protesting and right. want yeah. out. Um, I think the timing is interesting. We, Lebanon is the, at least the uh, designated prime minister is about to form a, a new cabinet. The consultations are, are ongoing. I think it's, it's very imminent. Uh, and the U.S. election. Uh, and what worries me is what uh, President Donald Trump is going to do <laughs> from now until uh, the elections in, mm. in November in terms of pressure against Iran and what the cost will be uh, for, uh, for Lebanon. Your question is, is this going to change anything? This is a very big question, and I honestly, I, I don't know. Sanctioning two members of the political establishment who are affiliated to Hezbollah is not going to change that much. But this right. is the beginning. Uh, additional uh, international, specifically American pressure on Hezbollah, because we already have uh, sanctions. And it maybe resonates what Macron was, uh, was alluding to uh, mm -hmm. when he came to Lebanon the, the last time and when he was asked about the international community sanction in case 
the political leaders do not abide by a reform plan and do not really progress uh, to get Lebanon out of, of the crisis. So really, I don't have a specific uh, answer, but it's just I think the timing uh, makes sense. It's interesting. Um, it's a first. We have to wait and see what else is going to come out of the U.S. administration before, you know, the, the elections. Right. Um, and... Unfortunately, I think this is going to divide the Lebanese. You know, let's let's actually go from there because I, I I I sense the same thing, and just in terms of well, you mentioned Macron and that there may be a slight differing on policy, just at least vis-à-vis -vis Hezbollah, that that maybe the Americans and the French do not see eye to eye on how to sort of approach that subject, and for that matter, the Lebanese protesters for, forget the forget the state, forget the regime. People on the street, they don't see eye to eye necessarily on Hezbollah either. Do, do you think that this is a question that's simply beyond uh, sanctions or beyond French sort of uh, curiosity or even even in terms of protests and, and domestic sort of uh, any sort of change that would happen on the ground in Lebanon? Do you think this is a story that is just, it's not a Lebanese story, that the answers to this question are really just more to do with regional concerns and if they are going to change, they won't necessarily change because of Lebanon. It'll change maybe for other reasons that have to do with Hezbollah's support base or, or even dynamics that have not happened yet. It kind of reminds me of the Syrian occupation of Lebanon. And the question mm, of yes, yeah. The Syrians went, you know, got out because of the protests from Lebanon and there was, you know, an opposition to that or because of the regional and international dynamics. I think in this case, we cannot dismiss the fact that many Lebanese do want change. The big mm -hmm. question mm -hmm. is, what extent do they want to change? And right. I, I, I'm skeptical. I have doubts about whether they really want everyone gone and, you know, electing new people who have nothing to do with this establishment, with these Zoamas, with these uh, traditional political parties. Mm. Um, and I think the Lebanese are still divided, and I think a majority still wants um, these um, these people one way or another. Maybe not the same way, not in... Um, I, I have doubts that really everyone wants them. And sorry, just to interrupt, when you say majority, do you mean the protesters, or, or is it majority population on the whole? The majority of the population. Uh, population, right, right. But even among the protesters, mm. uh, there are different... And it is only recently that, you know, the protesters, some of the groups among the protesters have been able to come together and to form kind of a coalition. But, right. you know, this uprising that we've witnessed since October was not born in October. It, I would go back to 2015 with the garbage crisis and the protests that yeah. came yeah. after. But really the question is, uh, to what extent do the Lebanese want change? What change? How radical? And are they able to, those who really want that radical change, are they able to um, get that change internally without any external interference? Right. Then the problem is our political um, scene is unfortunately manipulated by regional and international powers since forever. And uh, the fact that the political scene is, is divided among parties who are proxies of regional and international powers, you know, gives you a, a sense of the fact that this is not just an internal, it's not a Lebanese story, per se. Right. Um, 
And whether it's the French or the U.S. or anyone else, there's something that at stake that is at stake that's more than Lebanon, in my opinion. And I think, for instance, yes, the French and the U.S. are not on the same uh, level here. I even think the French got kind of a facilitation from the Iranians uh, on, um, you know, on their initiative. I think it started with the Security Council. The French voted against, you know, the renewed sanctions against Iran. I don't want to go into details, but it's not a pure Lebanese story, unfortunately, and it never was, Roni. It never was. Um, You know, yeah, no, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Because a lot of the protesters that I've spoken to, that I've been with, friends, they want this to be a purely Lebanese story. They're right. sick of the manipulation, the regional and the international manipulation. I mean, um, even if Macron came with good intentions, um, they would tell you the U.S. has no good intentions. It's clearly, you know, a thing against Hezbollah that we're dealing with here. Uh, or some people would bring up, you know, the colonial past of Lebanon and the French or other countries wanting yeah. to Reproject their power into into Lebanon. So, yeah. let, let, I mean, I, and I, I won't sort of, I won't bore you too much on this issue. But I think it's something that's worth exploring. And you, you mentioned that yes, and I, I myself was in Beirut until January. So I, I've been in New York since the beginning of this year, and I, I was lucky to witness that sort of the initial phase of the protest movement, the, especially the initial weeks, which were very optimistic and very uh, very hopeful. And I agree with you in that sentiment that, in my eyes, the average protester was really not concerned one bit with international uh, curiosity or even that matter uh, an international rescue package or any involvement from outside, that this was a very domestic moment and it was a healthy uh, expression on the ground. But I also, and I I sort of, uh, I'm hearing you say this in, in several ways, that the answers are not in Lebanon, despite the best efforts of the average protester, that the that the the real answers to long-term stability, unfortunately, go beyond Lebanon's borders. And I'm just curious, from your own experience, and and maybe in two things, in covering events, and perhaps you yourself living through these events, is there any room for reform? And I mean it in terms of the most basic issues. And you hinted at 2015 with the trash crisis. Is there any ability to reform the state so long as these bigger questions are left unanswered? And I mean this in, a, in, a, in, a, in a almost, um, I don't want to sound too naive here, but I actually mean it in terms of can we get to the baby steps without getting into the bigger issues? And can we avoid the bigger issues and sort of wait for things to change long term? I think we can. Yes. We can. Okay. I, yeah. Corruption is a big problem in Lebanon. That has mm-hmm. nothing to do with Hezbollah per se or regional power, mm-hmm. you know, powers mm-hmm. and, and politics. Uh, I, I think corruption is rampant in every political party uh, that and leader that has, you know, taken part and is part of this political establishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, if there's the political winning, willingness from the current you know, leaders and political parties to reform, then yeah, we can. And and, and I think it's it's urgent. We cannot wait for right. the big questions to be resolved because Lebanon is witnessing an unprecedented economic crisis and it's spiraling down day after day. It's, it's collapsing. So um, 
I think it's dangerous to wait for the bigger questions to, mm-hmm. to be resolved. But who's gonna who's gonna lead these reforms, right? It's the problem is when we go back to the protests and the uprising, one of the issues is the lack of I mean my question is how come from 2015 until today we didn't really see a political leadership come out of these protests? Why? And you hear this a lot among diplomats and the international community. There's no political alternative that they can dialogue and communicate with. At least we're talking here about something that's organized and structured. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about certain figures or groups. Sure. Yeah. So these are all questions. Who's going to lead these reforms? And is are the parties in power and the political establishment in place? Does it have the political willingness? And I, I think the problem here is that they want to go ahead with these reforms, but they want to make sure that they still get their share of the pie. And this is what right. the IMF negotiations tumble. It's not they don't want to negotiate with the IMF. They want to negotiate with the IMF, but they're just putting conditions and, and criteria to make sure that they're still going to be in power. They're still going to get a share of the cake, even if it means sharing the losses and not the gains, because there are no gains here, right? Um, so... There's a big question mark. Yes, of course, we need to do these reforms. We can't wait, but who's going to lead them? And that's why a lot of the protesters are saying, just bring an independent government of experts who can, you know, they, they have the solution, they can move things. But the question is, do these will these ministers have the power and the decision-making to take radical steps and, you know, I'd like to pick your brain on this issue. I'm I'm actually, I'm really glad you brought it up. I I love episodes where the guest brings up the questions for me because it makes it a lot lot smoother. So I appreciate you, in a way, offering a segue, which is very important. In your mind, best, if you could perhaps offer a, a, a broad understanding of why there's no traditional organization or structure or anything, and, and which you mentioned earlier, whether it's diplomats abroad or even in Lebanon that would like to have something, a, a dialogue with an organization that they could speak with, and they don't have that. Do you, I mean, in your, in your best assumption, is it, born out of, is it born out of fear that we've seen assassinations happen too often in Lebanon, and there's no appetite for sort of signaling a leader, per se, or an individual for the risk of that person being removed? Or is it, is it less to do with that and more to do with that the fluidity of this whole protest movement is the reason why it's still around, rather than being a structured, organized opposition that, that may affect more change, but is not perhaps able to do so in the Lebanese context? Because I'm curious about, you're absolutely right, October to August, we're in September, October to September, we're about to reach the one-year marker for this protest movement. You would want to see something evolved by now that is relatively structured and we don't have that so just i mean just to gauge your mind on that issue why would why is it so difficult to see that mature at least in this phase a few weeks into the into the protest you already heard people saying okay we want leadership yeah no we want someone to speak in the name of these protesters 
this was the discourse of the establishment, right? Mm. And you would hear people saying, no, let's keep it fluid, let's keep it decentralized. It was like the first time that you had protests, not just in Beirut, right. but all over uh, yeah. the country. Let's keep leaderless because we don't want any leadership to jeopardize the people's ownership of yeah. these protests. Mm -hmm. It was really domestic, it was genuine, it was triggered by an economic crisis. And people were united on this, you know, on some demands mainly economic demands, right? We weren't really talking about politics at, at the beginning. And then they started voicing, you know, their um, their demands against the political establishment, saying, you know, what they said in 2015, everyone in establishment should, should leave, etc. Um, and there was a consensus that let's keep it fluid. But then with time, it was obvious that it was becoming counterproductive. And I think a year after, you do need uh, a political vision for mm -hmm. this movement, this uprising. You need political representation. And if you have elections or a new government, you need to make sure that some of what happened in this uprising transcends at the political level. The political yeah. And why we don't have that now? Because at the beginning, it was a like a consensus. How do, you, how do you say it all about my Con Conscientious, maybe? Conscientious, yeah. Is that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, no, sorry, sorry, no, a conscious decision. What am I saying? It's con a con conscious. Yeah, conscious, yeah, conscious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my I, I went too far. <laughs> yeah, my conscience yeah. is interfering. Um, we, so, we, can, we can both blame it on Colombia. It's just down the street. That's better. Because <laughs> <No, I'm kidding. laughs> um, in French, it says, it's like I that. see, yes, right. <laughs> And so, yeah, it was a conscious decision to keep it like this. Mm -hmm. Now what I hear from different groups um, that are, you know, part of the this movement is there are points they can't agree on. They made a coalition, but I still, I don't see any figures that are leaders, people that, you know, the Lebanese would say, okay, I can follow this person as in I can, um, this person represents me, I will, you know, it's, I don't see that. I don't see that, unfortunately. And this is why I think people are still skeptical about to what extent they want that, that change is they are worried, they are scared. Um, they know that these dramas or these traditional political leaders, at some point, you know, they can always go back to them when in crisis and ask right. for service. You know, this is how the patronage and the clientelism system has always worked in, mm -hmm. in Lebanon. Less and less because they don't have much to give anymore because they are also short on resources, right. which is one of the reasons why this vicious cycle broke at that, on, mm -hmm. in October mm -hmm. last year. But I, I haven't met anyone that I would say is a leader. You know, you've seen uprisings like look at Hong Kong. It's yeah. the figures that you know naturally yeah. came out, and even now in Belarus. I was just like, going to say yeah, and she's. I think she's been. Kidnapped, or she's been held by. There's who was right. Uh, who yes, Lithuania. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, yeah, and they're women and they're right. like really leaders. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really not sure. Uh, your, your question is important. Are they scared? I haven't heard that to be honest. And you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's the Lebanese. There's like a general uh, feeling of helplessness. Of 
I, I don't but I, I I want to get one step further in this question because I actually I really appreciate your perspective here because you're you're offering in a way a, a reality which is this is a precondition to political authority or at least taking the street protest power into perhaps parliament one day or just in terms of uh, state behavior that you would want you would want to translate this somehow and you're also saying that it just hasn't happened and you know i i, I offered the uh, the the analogy with the assassinations because that that to me could perhaps be a something that people don't want to i they've seen sort of damage done when when visible names emerged and i always sense that that could be a background subject that's not really discussed thoroughly and we never yeah. really we never really sort of got into that as a as a nation if you will if you will it was not uh, they were just recurring and then they stopped and, and the other side of the story which you which you describe is that there is some pettiness involved sure and there is um, bickering at a level that you would not want to see but that to me does not necessarily mean that this should not organize regardless that you could have the pettiness on one side you could also have the natural evolution on the other and i i still i'm 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 with you on this all the way that i i i i don't know why it's so difficult to make this happen unless unless it's that perhaps most protesters forget regime supporters most protesters are, are not there yet that they're not maybe they're not able to see what a different lebanon looks like yet or or maybe the the future is too uncertain and there's no real roadmap at, at least in terms of something simple which you described hong kong the demands are fairly clear and in belarus it's very straightforward this is an old tyrant it's time for him to go and it's almost like you can see the target and you can either be supportive or you can oppose that target lebanon doesn't seem like there's a direct it's sort of target it's that's the problem it's more complicated there are more than one player one more issue. right right more than one issue yeah but at stake, it's domestic but it's also regional and international and uh, yeah and i hear you and to go back about you were talking about the assassination i'm kind of reminded of something during the protest people were also divided between those who wanted violence and those who wanted to keep protesting right. peacefully right. And you feel like some people are not willing to pay any price for change. They don't want to pay the, a violent, a bloody. And you know, if you, I, don't, I don't talk about a revolution, to be honest, Ronnie. I don't think we've had a revolution. That's why I'm, I call it an uprising. Um, and I think there's a price to pay for that change. And mm -hmm. Lebanese has been through so much. I'm not blaming. I'm not judging here. Um, the resistance, especially from the older generation, so there was a generational gap in the protests that I've, I've seen. The younger, more adamant, more keen on, you know, whatever, just for change, and the older generation, you know, more pacifist, etc. Which but one yeah, Which one are we in, Dalal? We're kind of in between. We're in the middle, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> We're not the, you know, the ones exactly. with no collective memory because the young ones have zero collective memory of the war. We're like the in-between, we inherit. Absolutely, yeah. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I think this is a problem is 
people want to they want change but then you see them they want to go on with their lives as if nothing is happening and I, I don't know if it's what I mentioned now this uh, psychology of helplessness of mass helplessness um, and unfortunately now you have people who are great uh, and who you would hear them just saying we're leaving we don't want to fight anymore right. Right. Yeah. And I'm one of them, to be honest. I just want to go. Not leaving the up, leaving the country, if I understood yeah. that right. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, so you, even among people who were leaders in the protests, I know a few who already left. Um, as you said, October, November, December, there was a hype. We thought it was another turning point, in my opinion, it was like the last chance because 2015 was missed. I thought, you know, this time yeah. and I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the COVID kind of the pandemic slowed things down. Um, people were confined to their homes, but I don't think it's, it's enough. It's an excuse. Um, I don't know. I mean, look now, no, no, no one is there's nothing happening and I don't know if Lebanon's change is at a different level it's not in the streets it's not mm -hmm, through. Mm -hmm. it's something that's more long run it's what we've been seeing these small groups coming together these private initiatives the awareness that uh, we saw during the protest with all these uh, groups having these public you know debates uh, outside you know this, the, the protests and um, people standing for for issues they didn't stand for before stand up mm -hmm. for I, I don't know if it's like a long-term process that is slowly building itself right right it's a radical change that will happen through a revolution and overnight i, I doubt it you know these there's so entrenched in this, <laughs> like these, these, these leaders and the problem is i think many people still want them and still defend them I, I did an episode with Maha Yahya, the director of Carnegie, and uh, during the middle of the episode, she went to her library and brought out the first ministerial statement by Riyad Salame, uh, Riyad Salame, Riyad Salah, 1943, and it's the sort of it's the first it's the first statement from this government, it's independence, and he's. Uh, calling on the need to remove sectarianism from, from the country. <laughs> that's, that's 1943. So, I, I mean, the way you're describing it is, uh, it really reflects how, how slow change is in the country, and that maybe things have reached the point now that either things move a little quicker or, or the country collapses. Because that's, I, and I don't want to sound too bleak here, but I think it's very important the the all the little all the small and painful moments that led to October 17 all, all of them and from the from the silly WhatsApp text to the fires burning in the mountains to the lira beginning to wobble and just the the general condition of the country then that led to such a big outburst of 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 expression yeah. but the blasts August 4 and then really that there's no consequence to that kind of horrible tragedy i mean I, I can't think of a moment where if things were going to change that i mean it, it would just have to be after the blast the blast that there's just that's the apocalypse it was the apocalypse of the corruption and the mismanagement there can be more and, I, and some, something very simple 
although it's not simple in the Lebanese context, but I think it is still simple, that you would expect the president to be either forced out or to resign. But that didn't happen. Uh, not no, only a government that was meaningless to me. I mean, right. A government that was appointed by the you know these political leaders. Yeah. And I, and I say the president only because that, that was such a visible uh, target of dismay and dissatisfaction during the protests. That if the blast could not usher his sort of his removal by by his decision or by his entourage or just by pressure, that that didn't happen. And and yes, the prime minister technically resigned, caretaker. Now we have a an, a new sort of version of that kind of status yeah. quo, but no one else. And these sort of maybe dozen of names that are either being interrogated or are in house arrest yeah. or, or even in jail, that does that doesn't reach the magnitude. No, no, it's not usually. Yeah. That's so, but can I ask you though, in, in that sense, now we we were a month and four days from from the blasts. Do you think of this as also a perhaps it's it goes beyond just protests and change and and these things that this is uh, something so deeply embedded in the Lebanese story that even when tragedy hits our homes and and destroys our own homes and injures and kills people in their homes that maybe this kind of change is not possible. And I mean it in what you were saying earlier in terms of revolution, that revolutions in the Lebanese story are very, very difficult, bordering on just, they, they don't happen. But this is not a country that you can see something like Belarus or Hong Kong, that, that kind of change. This is, just doesn't happen in Lebanon. Listen, before the explosion, I mean, for the past few years, I've I've become, working as a journalist on the field in Lebanon, I've become so cynical, so, so cynical. Mm. I mean, even as a journalist, I felt like, you know, my career was becoming redundant, is working on the same issues again and again and not seeing any change whatsoever on these yeah. topics or issues that you work on. And as I said, I, you know, the, the I think the blast was the apocalypse and you would expect something drastic to change yeah. Yeah. but at the same time I'm not surprised I mean are the criminals going to investigate their own <laughs> it's you know it's like who's who's in power here who who's holding the judiciary it's like it's not we don't have an independent judiciary is that that's why you would hear a lot of people calling for an international investigation it's because they don't trust they, they don't trust. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. I don't think this is why I'm telling you. I I'm planning to leave because I don't think there will be uh, any any change, at least <laughs> in the short or medium run. You know, it's it's really interesting because the the if I'll use this word carefully, the, the revenge that people expressed following the blast was collectively cleaning up Jamezi or Madam Khayyib, supporting each other. Uh, yeah, this it sort was of, one day protest. Right, the weekend after it was sort of uh, very tense, yeah. but then you have these sort of um, these sort of very very important moments where people came together to help. So that that is the sort of that is one aspect of, if you will, justice that Lebanese were taking care of themselves and forcing ministers to stay out of Jamezi and, and Madam Khayyib to the point that Macron walks alone on Gouraud. I thought that was kind of interesting, actually. World War One figure 
and then sort of the French president arrives on the same street marching. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's one form of revenge. And then the other one, you would expect, you would expect either protesters to storm the gates, find a way in and, and remove individuals by force, are the likes that we've seen in other revolutions, not something that Lebanese need to create on their own. This is what, this is unfortunately how, how change and that sort of uh, magnitude happens, and, and it didn't happen. So I, I can't think of an, a situation where there would be that kind of change, because no. there's just too much, we, yeah. We shouldn't be dismissive and say there is no change, because since October, a politician cannot go to a restaurant right, or walk on the streets without yeah. being insulted or someone comes up. Some things have changed, but it is not to the point where the system has changed and therefore, you know, their actions right. and repercussions and so we feel safer and better and everything's functioning again. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm saying I'm I'm now my conviction is that it's gonna be very, very gradual. It's gonna take a long time, if ever. Um, but a revolution, I mean, if <laughs> if this blast did not trigger something drastic, what what's gonna what is it gonna take, right? It's just, and I don't see the people coming. I don't see people coming together. I think it was beautiful and everything, but I didn't see it as a form of justice. It's interesting that you call that. I think it's people were grieving together. I saw this as mass grief. It's like finding comfort in each other because there's there's no one else and we're like it's we it's like these children who have no parents to take care of them so they just the siblings take care of each other all their life because they have no adults to to take care of them and i'm amazed you know and i think it hurts me even more to see people coming together through these initiatives and cleaning streets and rebuilding because it shows what great people we are yeah and absolutely this 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 you know, reality that, that we are in. Yeah. Um, it's unfair. I think the feeling, what bothers me every morning when I wake up is this feeling of really injustice and helplessness. Is you know, I think, I, I, I'm glad you corrected me on this. I, I meant injustice and in that in trying to heal wounds that without having... Yeah, we're grieving without, together. Yeah, without, without having proper justice. In other words, this is the absence of uh, accountability and, and responsibility. And you know, you can't, I don't think, this is not from today, it's from the civil war as well. You cannot heal without justice. Yeah, that's true. And Absolutely. I don't think we've ever healed from our traumas because of that. And you can just name them, tens of traumas that we've been through in our modern history. Yeah. Um, and, and I, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's mass trauma that the Japanese are going through now. And they're trying to heal, but I don't think they're going to be healing. Because, you know, one of the conditions for healing from trauma, because I, I have a form of uh, PTSD and I've like looked through this, is feeling safe and restoring your sense of safety in the environment that you live in mm -hmm. and restoring trust in the people around you. Do you think Lebanese feels safe today after the blast? Do you think we trust people around us? How are we supposed to heal? And this is why my answer to all of the traumas I've lived through is just leaving because I know I need to get out of here to be able to heal from my traumas. I, I, I'll, I'd like to ask you, and you say as much as you'd like about this because I know it's a, it's a personal decision and I, I'm just curious in that it seems like your own personal tipping point was, uh, was crossed. 
when, when you say leaving, and I, everyone has a, their own sort of version of this. I think people sort of detach for a while if they can, then they come back. I've been doing this for years now. Uh, there's others that literally desperate to leave and never come back, and they turn away completely and they sort of start over. What is that? What does it mean to you in terms of you know letting go of Lebanon now, at least in your own sort of immediate life and what? And I, I, I'm trying not to make it sort of too personal because I, I sense that this could sort of, it could be born out of painful sort of a painful reckoning. So yeah, how do you see your own sort of uh, story here, at least in terms of letting go right now of Lebanon? Yeah, so I, I think what I just mentioned, part of it is letting go to be able to heal because mm -hmm. I don't think this country is giving us the opportunity to heal because it's one trauma after the other. It mm -hmm. just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's leaving uh, to a safer place. I have a child where my child can also thrive and be safe. I, I go through this guilt trip every day of not being able to protect her. And usually parents worry about protecting their children in general in a safe, civilized, functioning country. So just imagine in Lebanon, especially, <laughs> feeling of, you know, helplessness and I can't protect my own child. I, I don't know if she can survive tomorrow because this country is, is just uh, mad. So I'm also going for, I want to go for her. Um, and to me, it's not letting go forever. It's not, yeah. no. it's not when you break up with someone and you know that that's it. It's, it's, it's a toxic relationship. It's not a healthy one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> a colleague of, of mine who's also a friend who you might know, Reem Mumtaz. She's a, a I, I, I was going to bring up her. She wrote a very nice piece about. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She describes our relationship with Lebanon as an abusive love relationship. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, this is a country that keeps abusing you, but you're staying in that relationship. And it's so toxic. <laughs> Willingly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then she describes, you know, leaving is sacrificing ourselves, you know, at the altar of sanity. I think this is what, what she says, because we we just can't take it anymore. It's like you, you you lose your mind at some point. by It's becoming surreal, honestly. And I think part of me is just tired and drained and is looking for some kind of normality. We don't have a normal life. I see my friends abroad, I mean, COVID aside, but they worry about planning, you know, their next vacation or, you know, we just can't, we, it's like a day-to-day -day thing here because you don't know what the next day is going to bring you. It's just ridiculous. But this kind of temporary in and out, which I've been going through myself, and uh, there's two pieces that came to me, and one of them was Reem Abdez, and she wrote about trying to cover the uh, Macron's visit without being part of the story, but at the same time, sort of mourning a city that she loves. So it's two things at once. Another one was by Dion, Dion Nissenbaum, the Wall Street Journal uh, Beirut reporter, and I did an episode with him yesterday. He wrote an essay about saving his daughter's life, and that he never would have wanted, he, he, he's almost, all, not regretting, but uh, he's aware that he, put his daughter's life at risk by signing up to live in Beirut, even though nobody would have imagined this type of blast to happen, let alone that this was seven years just sitting there, that it could have happened at any point in time. But but 
there's all, there's two things here. It's one that these are people that chose Beirut as their home, or they're Lebanese and they they're from from there. And if they're not from there, they want to be there. And when they leave, they still want to come back. So it's not a uh, it's very difficult to sever ties with this uh, with this story. And, it's a long age relationship. It's yeah. always like this. But we want there's part of us that that loves this place, and that's mm -hmm. why. We're in pain. That's why we want to Absolutely. come back. And you know, it's again the abusive relationship. You you keep hoping that it's going to get better, that it's going to get, it's going to work out, it's going to get fixed. And that's when, you know, that's why you stay. But then also, because you're in love, you say, okay, I'll leave. And then if if that person changes, I'll come back. And this yeah. is exactly how I feel towards Lebanon. If if Lebanon changes, I'll come back. But I'm not staying until Lebanon changes. I'm and not going to be in this abusive relationship until, you know, the other person changes. I'm out. You know, abusive relationships. I think we can all agree are 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 bad relationships. That they're they're unhealthy. I think it's different than abusive relationship. I think it's purpose. And I'd I'd like to sort of explore your own story here. And uh, I sense that journalism or storytelling or covering the moment is in your DNA. You're committed to this profession. And I'm, I'm guessing if you leave Lebanon, you probably won't be a basket weaver on some Greek island. You'll probably still be reporting something somewhere. So that, <laughs> I assume it's part yeah, of your is, story. Uh, this is a great point that I was discussing with my therapist yesterday. Oh. <laughs> my worry is if I leave, that I'm going to lose my sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't want to... Even part of me choosing to come back here after New York was, you know, I don't want to cover like just happy news and like entertainment or like like some silly stuff. It's not my calling, right? Like I've, and I've chose to report on marginalized communities and vulnerable groups and conflict, et cetera, because I felt like I, I found a sense of purpose in, in that. And, and yes, definitely. Um, Okay, it's an abusive relationship, but what I got from Lebanon is that sense of purpose. It, that's what it gave me back. It's yeah. one of the few things because I always felt that I've given I've given it more than it gave me. Right. It's that sense of purpose and being able to use your voice as a journalist to make a difference or to give a voice to you know uh, people who have no voice without sounding cliche, uh, reporting on issues that 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 matter. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yes, I totally agree. It's this passion I have um, to report and tell the stories of other people who need their stories to, to be told. And if you check my work, most of my work is not uh, politics or security. Yeah. or It's really, I've been covering um, like underreported communities and marginalized groups. Um, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm only sort of emphasizing the purpose thing, and at least in the Lebanese context, because, I mean, for there are endless stories to cover in a city like New York, and especially if you, if you lived here and you went to Colombia. There's a lot, all these sort of journalism uh, careers that take off from the Pulitzer School and they end up in, in New York or Boston or wherever. And there's thousands and thousands of stories to cover every day, and at the same time, disenfranchised group in Lebanon is just more meaningful and it becomes more it becomes more purposeful if that's the right word here and I think there's a per 
something personal, right? It's 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 my yeah. country. It's where I was raised. Right, it's, right. The society that I know best. It's the people that I know. It's, and I don't. I haven't reported only on Lebanon. I've also worked in in the region in general, including mm. Iraq, uh, Syria. Um, and yes, I think it's it, it's some. There's something personal here that's at at stake with that with that purpose. I think this is why the story hurts more. I yes. think more than it should. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I've been impacted by a lot of stories that I've covered and by even stories outside of Lebanon in the region. But what happened on August 4th was probably the hardest assignment I've ever had to cover. I mean, I've covered 2005, 2006, I, I was here, 2013, 14 different bombings, assassinations, and this was personal. I was crying in between, you know, my lives and just, it was hard to process. It It touched me, it touched my city, it touched my friends, it touched my people. And it's, because it was not like a foreign attack. It was not a natural disaster. It's also the feeling of injustice that mm -hmm. I mentioned. Yeah. And it just makes it hard to deal with. I think for most people that are not affected by assassinations, they can sort of compartmentalize it and say that we can move on because it didn't target us. us. Yeah. Even it's if it's target. Right. Even if there's casualties, there's always innocents that die in these different uh, targets. But regardless, you can almost look at, you know, you can almost go out the same night and, and adjust yourself to that level of abnormality. And that's how Lebanon has been for a long time. But the port blasts is fundamentally different. It's not... People are in their homes. Yeah. You're not yeah. safe. Exactly. You think, what's the safest thing? It's your house. Yeah. Your house is supposed to be safe. Absolutely. People were killed in their homes. Yeah. Hospitals where you're supposed to be saved. It's, you know, it just... Yeah. It's destroyed every sense of safety uh, Absolutely. that we have left. And then beyond that human toll, it's the neighborhoods that in our generation we've associated with a form a form of maybe maybe almost like tranquility that these are outside the conflict zone that you can exactly. still enjoy these neighborhoods and pretend that you're detached from regional turmoil <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it's probably places where i spend most of my time right in, in Beirut, right yeah i want to ask you about something that i i heard nadim Houri. The, uh, he used to run Human Rights Watch in, in Beirut. Yeah. You know him, yeah, he's Arab Reform Initiative now. And I got, I, I've interviewed him several times on the podcast and I, I heard him give a lecture in, in New York just before COVID, talking about the protest movement. And that was in, must have been in March, early March or, or late February. And he described the protest movement as a feminist protest movement, that this was a woman driven, but feminist in its essence. The, the power of women in this moment in time and talking about the sort of the positive change that has happened, even if it's small, but it's meaningful. Do you think that this is one of those very meaningful consequences, let's say, of the protest movement, of the uprising? And that, that's something that you can't change, that this is, this is uh, you don't go back from this, that women are front and center, at least when it comes to political uh, change. Not in the traditional sense that there's women have always been front and center, regardless. 
but but just in terms of street movement, political authority, and and that kind of change, is that something that is? Did that resonate with you? It does. I think two things that are distinctive in this protest is it's youth led and women led. I also mm -hmm. think the participation of the youth was something. I mean, we're talking here about. Um, Kids who are still in school now, I'm not talking about university. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, the women, uh, definitely. They were at the forefront. And I do believe in the power of women to bring people together in very creative ways. There was a brilliant uh, protest in March, I don't know if you remember that, with the pots. Yeah, of course, yes, yes, yeah. This led by women, women yeah. and um, there were many women leaders in the protest and I can name a few and they are part of leading groups now uh, and they've been speaking on behalf of, of the protest and I think that's been building up since 2015 as well but now more, more than ever. That's a change, of course, even physically the women were present in the protests in terms of being, you know, using their bodies as a shield yeah, uh, yeah. You know, to protect the other protesters uh, in front of the riot police, uh, um, participating in the violence. And I think this is, yeah. this is great because, you know, physical, this is a physical attribute that's usually given to, to men. Even that the initial that sort of kickbox against the security garden back in October, that was a woman that was October seventeen. Yeah. It's this woman yeah. who stood up to one of the bodyguards of a yeah. member of parliament and kicked him with his right. uh, with her her leg. But even after, really, yeah. there we have tons of pictures at, at the AP of the women at the forefront of these protests with sit-ins, you know. Um, and because there's this perception that, you know, the riot police and the security officers are not going to be very violent with the women, at least that's what women thought at, at the beginning. So yeah. they, they were the shield, but um, you would be surprised. Yeah, violence was used against uh, women uh, as well to break the protests. Um, the problem is, yes, okay, this is, is, is something that we've seen, the, the protests. How is it going to be... Um, interpreted, translated into the political. Right. Uh, so just like, I mean, for it's, it's a cliche example, but the nationality issue, that sort of, I mean, passing on your nationality as a Lebanese woman, do you see that as sort of now something that can be, that, that could be real, realized as a result of that kind of feminism? If enough, if enough women who are really believers in women's rights and enough men Mm, and mm, mm. Uh, get to parliament in the next elections. It's is this parliament is not going to vote uh, right for yeah for that. And unfortunately, it's being politicized. I mean, the whole issue is being politicized. Uh, it's not being tackled from a human rights uh, and a women's uh, rights perspective. Uh, so that and um, yeah, I mean, what we've seen in the cabinet. Okay, the number of ministers was. A bit higher than usual, but still not enough. And I'm not sure these. I mean, they're still being appointed by men, right? Hey, this happens every episode. Yes, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> but you still have internet. That's the most important because thing. I, I predicted that this was going to happen. So I data. Um, 
connected to my hotspots. Thank my you. But I, I think it, it fits the story. Uh, <laughs> hey, there we go. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable that my kid has to go through this. And I went through this ever since I was her age. So let's use, I mean, just using this sort of generation as an example. You, you, you're referring to a several things. One of them is an abusive relationship. You're also able to see that, yes, it takes enough feminists, enough enough men to be on board with that kind of change. And at the same time, the current lineup, the current arrangement doesn't really allow for that kind of change. What would it take for you to be at least optimistic for your, for your daughter long term to live in a Lebanon that you perhaps wish you lived in and now you're on your way out? And, and I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, what would it take for the abusive partner to do for you and and for you to maybe encourage your daughter one day to reconsider Lebanon as as home? Is, is there something that you could point at? E even if it's something simple like elections, that you need to have elections that are meaningful, or, or a judiciary that's independent, or just something that you can sort of say that is that is a starting point. And then we can kind of maybe one day reach the you want the starting point not the ambition like not the big picture i mean as, assuming that everything we said today is fairly true that things are very slow regardless even in the best of circumstances i, w I wouldn't come back if there are a fair uh, elections with a fair electoral law and hmm. i would hmm. need to see you know who's, who's going to get elected what work is going to be done what laws will be you know uh, passed and, and approved etc hmm. um I think to me it's really knowing that you're safe, you're not going to get, your partner is not going to abuse you physically, yeah. <laughs> um, nor psychologically um, in terms of getting your rights, and especially she's, she's a girl, she's going to be a woman. Um, it's a civil state. I mean, this is my ultimate, um, I, I, we live in a country where Citizens don't have equal rights. It's uh, unfortunately. I mean. So you, you would want to see some serious structural changes b before sort of reconsidering yeah. this decision. Yeah. Yeah. See civil state. That's the ultimate structural change, right? Because this is we're not we're not near that. That although it's we could because it's kind of part of our you know. Constitution is and our declaration since ministerial declaration since 1943. Um, so yeah, the, the confessionalism is a problem. I think it's but listen, the basic things that annoy me on a daily basis like traffic, pollution, the economic crisis, green spaces, uh, a clean public beach. Oh, you're you're asking for too much. What are you talking? What where? What are you talking? The clean beach, clean water, and power twenty four hours seven. That means Lebanon has changed. I'm, okay. I'm so so if and I want to yeah, I I hope I understand this right. So you, these are to get, to get water and power. You you it's not gonna come like this. It's, right. So so in other words, if there is. 24-7 electricity and if you can drink from the tap 
we're kind of going back to the way things were maybe in the late 1950s, early 1960s. For, for that kind of situation to reemerge, it means that most of the structural problems have been fixed. That then, then it's because a safe I bet. I think for these problems to be fixed, you need to fix the structural problems. I think the system itself is the problem. Right. I'm not yeah. talking about outside, I'm not talking regional conflict and stuff. And right, right, yeah. The Kiba, the structure yeah. that has, I think, is an obstacle to reform and, and to change. Yeah. For better or worse, Lebanon's story is going, going back to the beginning of the conversation, that this sort of basic services that you'd like to see improved, they're tied up with, un they're unfortunately tied up with wider stories. Whether it's um, whether it's sort of holding people to account domestically, or, or for that matter, trying to tackle regional issues that would once and for all end Lebanon's r repeated sort of phases of chaos and, and violence. And I mean, I, I I want to also have a child one day that grows up in a Lebanon that they would want to live in and feel safe. And uh, I just want to wrap it up with with something that kind of wraps all of these things up together. And uh, I'm going to share with you my, my side of the story, and I, I'd like to hear yours. You were in Beirut during the blasts. So you, you I'm, I'm assuming you probably heard the blast, or, you, or you're not. Oh. I heard the blast. I, yeah. I thought, I thought uh, some, there was an airstrike on right. my house or something. Right. You're experiencing the impact of the blasts. And then, you know, you're minutes away from, from the story, and then you're covering the story. And you described it as probably the most challenging story you've ever covered. I wasn't in Beirut. I was in New York. And then all I did was sort of try to try to watch every single image or video snippet of the blast. And this is the early minutes, sort of trying to understand what happened. There was a lot of speculation all over the place. But then sort of 24 hours later, I'm still trying to watch every single image read every tweet, every station that I have access to. Days go by, that's all I'm thinking about. And I know it's a moment of extreme pain and agony and suffering. Uh, and I really wish I was there. I really wish I was there. And to me, this is a form of, uh, this could be illogical. Uh, only one person said something to the contrary that made me think twice. They're like, yeah, but I think loved ones are happy you're not there. Exactly. But but I you know that's that's the only moment that I sort of thought twice but for my own reasons really wish I was there. And I felt like I was stuck in a situation where all I could do was try to raise money on this podcast, donations, 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 do what I can from abroad, but still it's not satisfying one bit. I really wish I was there you are leaving and you may not be in Beirut the next time something it probably won't be like this this is probably something that we will only experience once in our lifetime hopefully but there will be tragedy around the corner in Beirut and you won't be in Lebanon do you feel any sort of hesitation that you would be away from the story that matters most to you even when you're providing something that's safer for your daughter and not just her, safer for you too. And sort of the stability that you were describing earlier, friends are talking about things that perhaps matter more at a certain age and a, a fairly tranquil life that's not sort of 
You're not going to be in, in trauma's way all the time. Do you hesitate at that, thinking that I wish I was there to cover that story? Or has that moment passed for you, that now you don't want to be in Lebanon when something of, of immense pain and tragedy happens? Listen, this is home. It will always be home. Um, it's, I'm, if I'm going to leave, I'm definitely going to be torn. I'm leaving behind a life, a career, people that I love. My whole family is going to be here. My parents are aging. Um, no, it's. I'm definitely going to be in your shoes. I'm definitely mm. going to be if something happens and I'm not there to witness it, to be part of it. First, as a Lebanese, before being a journalist, because this is home and I, I, I will always love home. I will always love Beirut. And of course, I understand what you've been through it. It would pain me so much to see, you know, my country suffering and I am not there. I can't do anything. It's, I think it, part of what you felt is a lot of helplessness. Is, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and just grieving from a distance is hard because you are alone. You, you, I, my comfort was grieving with other fellow Lebanese. It's right. Right. part of processing. My trauma was writing these stories and, and reporting. It, yeah. it helped me much as it traumatized me, it, it helped me, to be honest. And it, I had a sense of purpose. People were helping removing the rubble. I was telling the world what was happening. I was, you know, giving Lebanese a voice. It, I felt useful to my own uh, country. And I'm definitely going to be torn, and it's going to be painful uh, that if something ever happens again. And I do not wish that. <laughs> sure. Uh, but it's not an easy decision, Bonnie, really. Yeah. It's, I wish it was easy. I wish you can just um, leave and leave everything behind and just, you know, start over again. And, you know, yeah. no, you can't. It's, something's always going to pull you back. The goal, okay. would, the goal would be to have a, a functioning Lebanon that treats its citizens with some respect. And I think that would solve a lot of our problems once and for all. And I, I've realized that I don't have red lines. I used to tell myself years and years ago that if something were to happen to me in terms of immediate my immediate life, that then I would consider maybe detaching for good. I tried that. I tried several years of not setting foot in Lebanon. Uh, this is actually at the time that you were reporting on the assassinations. I, I left for four years. I didn't come back for four years. Those I mean, were something personal happened. You lost your own father. I but, mean, this but, is the personal thing that absolutely but just yes and then hint uh uh showing just how how difficult it is to detach for good four years later i was living in beirut again giving my history tour doing what i love doing and almost almost uh sort of you, you realize there's nothing that can keep you away from this country that there's no red lines and, and then something tragic like the port blasts happen and my heart, all my emotions are there. They're not in uh, New York. They're nowhere else. They're there. And I think that's the story, maybe, of, uh, of generations of Lebanese that have faced a similar dilemma. I, I hope your daughter doesn't have to have that kind of life, because I think if any generation, it should be ours that kind of fies, finds the way forward. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want this to be the recurring nightmare for future generations. But to end it on a positive note, uh, I look forward to your stories wherever you are on planet Earth. 
and uh, I, I, I really appreciate the, the time you've given me to explore your mind. And I think the Lebanese story is in us no matter what we do. And if, if, if you end up becoming some like acoustic guitar player with a hat on some <laughs> street corner, I'll, I'll grab you and your daughter and your family. I'll say, no, no, I think we need to go back. This is not what it, this is not, that's not the career that we were talking about. It's not gonna happen. No. I'm always gonna be, I'm always gonna use my voice as, as a journalist to, yeah. you know, report on stories that matter to me. It doesn't have to be Lebanon. Uh, per se, Lebanon will always matter as, as a story, but no, I, I don't see my life. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're so fed up, you're like, I just want to be on a bar, you know, just like giving people drinks and just go, but you know, after a month or two, I'm going to be bored and I'm going to be like, that's not my calling and I'll be back to I'll, what I do. I'll wager with you after an hour, you would an say, hour? yeah, it's like, I wish I was back. <laughs> Dalal, thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck wherever life takes you. I, I really, I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>